Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata Podcast. I am really excited today to be joined by Dr. Sonia Cabell. Cabell, sorry. She has a she has a PhD and is an associate professor of reading education in the School of Teacher Education in the Florida Center of Reading Research. Uh, she also has worked as a second grade teacher and a literacy coach in Oklahoma and Virginia. Dr. Cabell's research focuses on early literacy instruction with a particular interest in the pre prevention of reading difficulties. She's authored over 70 publications and has been an advisor on a variety of national organizations and state departments of education. Now, I'm just reading from your bio there for a second. And I have a quick question actually about your bio. Are those 70 peer review publications? Um, I have about 50 peer-reviewed publications, and the rest of them are outside of that. So I have some books, um, book chapters, um, reports, things like of that nature. But about 50 or so are um, peer-reviewed. That's wild. I, I've just really started in the last six months really trying to aggressively peer-review um, research. And uh, it is a daunting process. I don't know if I'll ever get to 50. That's really impressive. You definitely, I think you definitely will get to keep, if you keep on pursuing it, you know, I've been doing this for a really long time, right? How long have you been doing this for? Just like <laughs> Let's see. So um, I graduated in 2009 from the University of Virginia with my PhD. And oh. at that time, so I guess I started publishing, um, you know, around 2008, 2009 is when the, some of the first things started coming out, uh, maybe 2007, but it's everything else is, I mean, is post PhD, uh, cause it takes a long time to get things published. You know that, right? <laughs> I've, I've definitely found that out. I've, I've got about, uh, six or seven things out for peer review right now. And I've gotten one thing published. Um, and I think it's really ironic that the one thing I have gotten published is, um, on research methodology. Um, of all the things to have as your first, I think that's kind of funny, but um, well, congratulations. That's awesome. Well, thank you. I mean, um, I don't even like I, I I think that you with your PhD, I don't know, you would just take things. Well, I have no idea, no PhD for any <laughs> listeners out there. Um, I, I do want to say I'm really excited to have Dr. Cabell on. Uh, we're gonna be talking about knowledge and understanding today, um, or background knowledge, I should say. And uh, not only do I view Dr. Cabell as one of the leading experts in the world on this topic. Um, but I also, I see her engaging on social media. She's such a responsive person and she's so um, respectful in the way that she, she discourses with everyone. And I also say that this is not our first conversation. Uh, she and I have previously had a, a conversation um, where I asked her for advice on an article I was writing um, and she was just so generous with her time. So I've, I'm really happy to have her on the podcast and share her knowledge with people. By the way, um, her the meta analysis she, she helped co-write on um, background knowledge instruction I think is the best meta analysis on that topic, and I say this as someone who's trying to publish a meta analysis on this topic. So that is um, so kind. I really have to give a shout out to Hei Jin Huang, who is at the University of Minnesota. She's an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota, who is a partner with me in that work. She led that work, and um, yeah, her work is really outstanding. Well, you guys did a phenomenal job. job Thank that. you. Um, so without any further ado of talking about your accreditations, uh, let's, let's dive into the conversation and I'm just going to go up to my questions here, but to start, let's talk about what is knowledge? What do people mean when we're talking about teaching knowledge in, in curriculum? Uh, to quote Timothy <laughs> Shanahan, isn't that already what we're doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, um, it's interesting how people define knowledge, um, because knowledge is, can be very, very broad, right? It could be um, 
the the knowledge that you need to even the knowledge that you need to approach a text to be a text to be able to decode words you're using some sort of knowledge base right we call it print knowledge we call you know orthographic knowledge we have all of these terms the vocabulary knowledge we have all these terms that have the word knowledge in them but i think that the knowledge that's become popularized is really about knowledge of the social and natural world or science and social studies knowledge. And just so listeners can understand, uh, my background is really in the early grade space. I was a second grade teacher and then I was a, um, kinder, a K through three um, reading coach back in the days of um, reading first in the early 2000s. Um, and then my my doctoral work focused on preschool classrooms. So my research focuses really on the on the early uh, childhood period, about age three to eight is where, where I focus. Um, so when I think about this topic, I'm talking from the lens of a young child um, and not necessarily from a, from a high schooler. Um, I love the discussion in your reading panel that you had the other day um, that covered the range of, of um, topics of reading comprehension and talked about knowledge. When I think about knowledge, I'm thinking about the science and social studies knowledge that young children need, and they begin learning about the social and natural world right from the beginning, right from birth. I love that you made that caveat because I think it's a, it's a really important caveat to talk about what, what groups of students we're talking about. I, mean, I think sometimes when we have discussions over what pedagogy should be used in a classroom, we get um, into this mindset of it's all or nothing. But in reality, I would think that the pedagogies you're going to use, say, in a grade four classroom are going to look very different than in a, a grade mm -hmm. 11 classroom. <laughs> Although I would I would think you would actually teach knowledge to both, admittedly. Yeah. Um, so let's let's take a look at what is what is the role of knowledge in reading comprehension? Mm -hmm. um, so. Knowledge in reading comprehension is largely assumed by every uh major reading comprehension theory. Um, it is um, kind of one of those things where people are like, duh, of course you need knowledge, background knowledge in order to approach and read a text. But one of the issues in American education has been that we really clung on to the fact of activating children's background knowledge after the National Reading Panel Report but not necessarily building that knowledge. And it was during that same time period in the United States where um, in the early 2000s, where the reading blocks in the early grades became um, very long and kind of pushed out some of the science and social studies inadvertently. Um, so you have the situation in major US districts where in the early grades, very little is going on um, in terms of science and social studies instruction. Um, and that's largely due to reading. Um, in my in my view, it's 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 a lot due to reading and how how we focused on reading. But it shouldn't be the case that we need to just kind of divorce reading from uh, from from content. Um, but those approaches have been so siloed in our educational system because if you think of things like textbook adoption, you have like an ELA adoption, then you have a science adoption and a social studies adoption. It's not just one adoption that you, where you think about your curriculum holistically in in the K five space, it is siloed. Mm. You know that brings me to a, you know an important question that I was thinking about, and that I think part of my I, I've, I've spent a lot of time discussing this online, 
And I think one of the spots where I, I get into a little confusion is maybe this is the difference between the United States and Canada. So in Canada, or at least where I teach, there's there's a very clear curriculum of what teachers are supposed to cover in social sciences and sciences. But I sometimes see online teachers claiming that um, they have no periods allotted in their day for science and for social studies. Is, is that common in the United States? I would say in the early elementary classrooms, it is. So um, so when, when we're talking about the K3, K2 kind of space, um, it's often given a short shrift and we don't have the, you know, you're talking about national standards in Canada for science and social studies. Well, we, we like, like the States, I think in that we have provinces. So education is a provincial um, jurisdiction. Um, however, um, every province I've taught in and I've taught in a few is we've, it's been a part of the curriculum for every grade, um, except yeah. maybe kindergarten. Um, I think that maybe it's not covered in kindergarten. Well, I think it's true that it's been part of the standards in states in every grade. The issue is how do you approach those standards, particularly when the when the nation places such an emphasis on reading and um, also on reading comprehension, then reading comprehension seems divorced from science and social studies knowledge. I feel like that was the place where we were in the early, in the 2000s around mm -hmm. reading first. Um, and, uh, but I think that we're in a different place now, um, a more encouraging place, I think, where there is an attempt to integrate content um, into early grades, um, K2, through a content-rich English language arts approach or content-rich literacy approach. And so you're finding that since, I think since the advent of the Common Core State Standards in 2010 is when this push has been being made across the United States um, to infuse science and social studies into English language arts more. I would say um, that it's interesting that that's the, that's the direction of where the attention has been on those English language arts curricula and adding content to them. So do you think, you know, in some ways, I think what we're really talking about when we have this discussion around knowledge rich instruction during the ELA block is, is really just taking a more cross curricular approach to teaching reading. Would that be fair? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you, uh, maybe let me clarify what I mean. And then maybe you can clarify what you mean by cross curricular. So I think it's a more integrative approach. Um, however, all of the, at least the major publishers of curricula that I'm familiar with, none of them would say that their English language arts curricula that's content rich stands alone, that you don't also need science and social studies instruction. Most of them that I've talked to would say that it supplements the science and social studies instruction that you're also supposed to be doing. So, it is not, uh, but however, in practice, in my experience, um, what I've seen districts do is sometimes integrate that into their English language arts block and feel like they have also been teaching content and don't also need to continue to teach additional content. Um, and so while the inclusion of content into English language arts has been helpful, it is not the end solution in my view. Um, and while integrative approaches uh, like, like um, Heijin and I um, 
examined the, the literature that based that was there in K-5 approaches that integrate content and literacy. And sometimes they integrated it in ELA and sometimes they integrated it in science and social studies. And most of those studies were not, um, were not um, available curricula or um, published curricula. A lot of them were experimenter developed curricula yeah. um, that have not been published. Um, but um we really hadn't haven't found found a great solution yet to um thinking about encouraging districts to think about curricula across their day and how it impacts students you know in the pre-k space we have curricula that are developed that are whole the whole day curricula but in kindergarten and up um the major publishers don't have curricula that span that whole day. I know Nell Duke is working on Great First Eight, which is a which is available on her um, website, um, where she's looking at a whole day curriculum for kindergarten and and up for the early grades. Yeah, you know it's funny. Um, the only curriculum that I can think of that really sort of fits that description of you're talking about is CKLA. Um, and you know, if people ask me like what programs would I recommend? I, I often will say CKLA is the most comprehensive program. Um, but I also have to admit, I get slightly concerned about that too, um, because I think it's an enormous power for one company or one organization, but it's not even a part of the government to say, make the curriculum for a large number of schools. Mm -hmm. I And so let me say a caveat or a clarification to something you said. So CKLA is the language arts portion of core knowledge. They also publish science and social studies and history, science, geography um, pieces. All of those are supposed to go together. Yeah. Not So CKLA, uh, the language arts portion doesn't stand alone, nor would they say that it stands alone. Um, I think that the, the thing about, and, and, Full disclosure to the audience here is I did run two randomized control trials in kindergarten on CKLA. So just the, the knowledge strand of CKLA and found positive effects on children's vocabulary, um, including effects on standardized vocabulary instruction uh, or standardized vocabulary words. Um, but one thing that they do differently than the other programs is that they have, uh, they're, they're really concerned with the sequencing Mm. of uh, the knowledge um, across time um, and then that spiral sequencing across across grades. So there's coherence within and across grades. Dave Grismer and colleagues, this might be the study that you were kind of referring to that he, he did a study out of the University of Virginia um, that looked at the core knowledge schools that were implementing the core knowledge sequence. They weren't inter, inter implementing the core knowledge um, language arts curriculum this was kind of at a time when the that curriculum was not really fully developed, um, but they were they were schools that were committed to implementing core knowledge sequence and teaching knowledge, and um, they had a lot of the materials that were all recommended by the foundation, and um, he's finding really good long term findings of uh, the core knowledge approach, um, you know. I don't know whether the, you know, there hasn't been long-term studies of any of the other knowledge building approaches. So I don't know whether, you know, that one versus other ones um, work better for children in terms of their comprehension. But I do know that what they claim to do that's different than some of the others is that sequencing of instruction to build background knowledge for students upon which to 
introduce new background knowledge. I mean, to introduce new concepts, not assuming yeah. they already have the background knowledge. Yeah, that was a really interesting site. We actually had a, I had another guest on just to discuss that one study. And I think we oh, did yeah. an hour unpacking of that study. Um, I need to listen to, I'm, I will listen to that. Uh, I, I'll send it to you after. Um, I'd love it. I thought, I thought that the Grismer study was really important because it was uh, um, such a large scale study. And it was one of the first um, studies to show um, significant, statistically significant impacts of a knowledge building curriculum on reading comprehension outcomes. Um, but I, I was concerned about the fact that, you know, it was charter schools versus business as usual instruction. And we really didn't know what was the instruction and the control group. And I, I kind of view that as sort of a random effect being measured. And I think it's a really positive sign, but I thought we definitely need more studies on this topic. I don't know if you. We definitely need more studies. This paper has not yet gone through the, I, I'm assuming it's currently going through a peer review process, which you know takes a while. Um, but it is, um, you know, I think one of the things, I think it's impressive. I, you, yes, you cannot um, separate the effect of the charter school from, um, you know, it's the effect of it, the, using the core knowledge sequence in the charter school. And I tend not to use the word curriculum for this study because people get confused and think that they were implementing CKLA um, when they weren't. They, But I understand you're using the word curriculum more broadly. Um, I think that um, that one, one of the things that I wrestle with in that study is um, um, the knowing the implementation of that sequence in that study. I'd like to know more about that. Um, I also um, want to understand, like you, like you, the instruction that the control group had. Um, and then um, I also you know, I'm, I'm kind of, um, suspending my, um, thoughts until it's gone through peer review on the, um, impact that they mention they describe about the one school, uh, where children, um, where it closed gaps and things is because it was a very small part of the sample. So, um, I would want to some more information about that. Um, but in general, it's been, it's a very, a promising study, a longitudinal study. The other, when I think about other longitudinal work, I think about my colleague Jimmy Kim's work um, out of Harvard University. He has been um, looking at um, the more approach that he that he developed, and he's been looking um, longitudinally over um, um, not over over multiple school years, but it's let it the dose is not that much over those uh, over the school year plus a summer plus a, as a second grade at going on first grade going into second grade i believe and he found effects on comprehension that are um in recent work that he just presented this summer uh, at the society for the scientific study of reading conference so his work is really promising and what he talks about is teaching young children to like to be scientists to be to um like a phd for he thinks about it like a PhD for young children. And I love that approach. Um, and so his work to me is some of the, the best. Yeah. Um, it's funny that that those two studies you referenced came out right after I submitted for peer review and meta-analysis on this topic. And I thought about when I got the next uh, stage of the review, I thought about trying to re-put or put, add them to the meta-analysis to include their, their content. 
And I thought it would just be too much work to recalculate all of those effect sizes and confidence intervals. So instead, I just um, met, added them to my literature review and made the note that they were published after the uh, systematic search was conducted. Um, yes, and hopefully that will work because I know that um, depending on your search criteria, right? If you were reviewing the gray literature, so this or peer just peer reviewed literature. So if you were also reviewing, because Dave Grismer's is, is not a peer reviewed publication, it's a report, right? So anyway, hopefully that will work. Um, um, sometimes uh, journal editors ask you to when they they'll ask you to update all the way right before. <laughs> that sounds awful. I really hope I don't get asked to do that. Um, so we've been kind of dancing around this a little. What is the the scientific argument or the experimental argument for including a knowledge building approach in your instruction for reading? So the way I think about it is I think about the work on integrated content and literacy work. So um, my colleague, Cajun, um Huang and I, at first I said, I said to her, why don't we find all the studies that look at knowledge building's effect on reading? And you know what? There aren't studies, okay? So that isolate the effect of knowledge building. Um, and, and we were looking specifically at vocabulary and comprehension. And um, so where we ended up landing with our, um, with our meta-analyses was about the, this integrated approach. Um, what, you know, a lot of times what we were finding is that studies of science and social studies don't have literacy outcomes and studies of literacy don't have science and social studies outcomes. These, the research is also quite siloed. So our meta-analysis ended up becoming about integrated approaches. Um, and what we found, and we didn't find that many, we found um, thir in 30, our final samples, 30, about 35 studies, um, that um, where most of them were um, interventions that um, the researcher had developed that integrated um, either science and social or social studies and um, literacy. Um, and the, the effects on children's skills in K-5 um, was, um, you know, was sizable on vocabulary and comprehension with standardized effects also evident in comprehension. Um, but again, I find I find this area to be small but growing mm -hmm. literature base. Sure. Um, you know, my colleagues and I at the Florida Center for Reading Research in 2020 have an article where we look at what we know about the science of reading. Um, and what this was in this was in the section, this information was in the section of things that are promising but not yet well established. Um, so I, I am, I am not the person to say, oh, you know, we absolutely know this about this, and this is the way you need to do it. I don't think we have all those answers yet, but we do know that knowledge does matter for our ability to read something. Um, our what we bring to the text um, matters, uh, and it matters the whether or not we can learn from a text matters our background knowledge matters for that too um but certainly um just like you had said in in just like the panelists had said in your reading panel roundtable um sometimes people pit reading strategies with or comprehension strategies with um knowledge building and it doesn't have to be an either or but rather what do we know and using a both and kind of approach to that 
Um, yeah, but I do, I am encouraged by the, um, the curricula that are being developed, uh, with this integration in mind, with knowledge building in mind. Yeah. I think, I think there's been about six meta-analyses that have, have looked at this question so far that I'm aware of at least, but, um, uh, there's only been a couple that looked at, at standardized um, test results versus researcher design test results. And I, if memory serves me correct, yours is one of the ones that, that compared the difference between standardized test results and um, researcher design tests. Yeah, um, I would love to. Um, I wonder if the meta-analyses, your other meta-analyses you're referring to, I'd love to kind of um, compare my list with you of, of the better so, so that I'm also am aware of all of the the ones in this area. Um, but Hagen and I also looked at just the English language arts ones in the K uh, in the K five space. Um, oh. The ones where content was integrated in English language arts and the results were very similar with the with the, our broader one as well. Yeah, so there's there's four I think that and I'm I'm including my non peer reviewed one here. But okay. There's four four that have looked at standardized versus non standardized and where maybe you're aware of another, um, but they all show basically the same trend of um, much larger results on proximal studies or research oh, yeah. design tests, and then on average, smaller results on standardized tests. But yours had the most studies, I, I think, on this question. And I think you also found the largest effect of the, of the ones I've examined. But I, I'm curious as to why you think we see such a, a wide discrepancy between researcher design tests and standardized tests for this type of question. Because when we look at, say, phonics, we don't see, or fluency interventions, we don't see the same level of discrepancy between the results. Well, I think when you're talking about, let's talk about vocabulary, for example. Sure. We have a really um, established finding that if you teach students the words, they will learn those words. The question is, does it generalize to anything else, right? Yeah. And a lot of times these more generalized tests are just tests of other words. They're not necessarily constructed in ways that are truly generalizable or, or that's truly transfer. It's really hard um, because the difference between, let's say, um, phonics instruction and comprehension instruction is when you think about what you need to know in to be able to read in English in terms of um, phonics, let's just take the alphabet. The alphabet is finite, yeah. right? There are 26 letters. There's ways that those letters go together. There's sound, different sounds that are, are made. And that information is finite or some, some researchers have described as constrained. Then you have the unconstrained language box, vocabulary. There are so many concepts and words. It's, it feels infinite. They're not really constrained. So I don't know the whole, you, we can be talking and you can say a word that I've never heard, or I can read a word that I've no, I don't know, but maybe it's used in, you know, I said, one time I said the word rubric to my sister who, my sister is like, she went to MIT, Stanford and Harvard and was like a rocket scientist and has been on Broadway. She is like a very, probably super, super, super accomplished person. But I said the word rubric, you know, a word you and I might use a lot as teachers. And she was like, wow, that's a fancy word. Wow, that's an amazing word. That's, you know, you're so smart. You know, this word rubric. And I'm like, that's every teacher knows that word. <laughs> right. Right. But she that wasn't something she 
had known. So it's the idea that we we learn the vocabulary that we're exposed to, that we're taught, um, the and then but when you trans the transfer the transferring to standardized measures is much harder because is it really transfer meaning um we ass we're assuming those standardized tests are measure are 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 far transfer for example but as we know um let's say reading comprehension um i read a passage that i know something about and I'm like, I'm going to probably do better on that comprehension test. I read a passage that I don't care about and know nothing about. I'm not going to do as well on those passages. Um, so the idea of do these tests that we have really measure transfer is a, is a big one. And I think it plagues the language comprehension part of the simple view. I, I couldn't agree more with that. So Talking about this idea of a, a transfer effect, um, the the interpretation I got from these meta analyses and your paper on showing that the um, transfer to standardized tests, at least whether or not that's measuring a true transfer effect, is another question. Seems to be low, but the the non-transfer effect or the proximal effect or the immediate impact of teaching knowledge seems to be really high. Mm -hmm. So what I've taken away from that personally, in my own practice, is that. When I teach a new text, I should be teaching the knowledge and vocabulary associated with that text. And I've taken it more of um, um, how do I apply this to the text in front of me with my students and last to how do I um, apply it systematically. And I do want to ask you more about this question of systematic instruction with knowledge. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious to on uh, your thoughts about my interpretation that there might be an especially strong benefit if we teach it to the specific text at hand. No, I like that because the um, the text itself is extremely important. We can't divorce the text um, from the knowledge and the vocabulary that they're learning, right? And children tend to, uh, you know, tend to learn the the proximal effects are very close to the intervention, so the effect size is much larger for those. That if we're teaching the words, we're teaching the ideas. Children, you know, can learn those ideas. I think that your takeaway um, makes sense to me. Um, the question becomes: How do you teach something concepts in a way that over time that become more transferable? And that is a really an outstanding question in research um, that we can teach something to transfer partially to something else that's similar, yeah. but it's much harder to get that far transfer type of effect to more distal skills. And that's been a problem, not only in the school age literature, but when you think about the preschool literature on vocabulary acquisition, it's all very similar uh, findings. Yeah. I think uh, there's even been some research showing similar findings for strategy instruction that teaching students strategies seems to help for, you know, similar texts, if it's applied to similar texts, but not necessarily transfer well to new, completely different texts. And I think that what's really important is thinking about, really thinking about how those, how the knowledge and strategies and the texts, how they all work together and go together, because certain texts um, will lend themselves to certain strategies. Um, and so all of those pieces should be looked at uh, together and considered together. And also when a teacher is thinking about um, building knowledge, um, 
making sure that building knowledge is not necessarily just activating that knowledge. Because if a child or a student doesn't have the knowledge to uptake from a particular text, um, no amount of activation is really going to be helpful. Now, it doesn't mean you withhold the text from the child, right? I'm not saying you don't teach about something. You don't teach them about something because they don't have background knowledge on it. Rather, that you're helping them. I, I would say the opposite teach yeah. them something so that they can have background knowledge on a particular thing. So they can learn new things uh, more readily. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. So I think the million dollar question in this whole topic is um, does teaching it systematically improve outcomes? Um, and I, I'm curious as to, to your perspective on mm -hmm. this. I think that we do see from, if we're going to going back to that Grismer study, um, and going back to um, Jimmy Kim's recent work on longitudinal effects on, I think that we do see that there is some evidence of um, teaching over time in ways that are systematic and build on one another as being helpful to children's um, knowledge um, and comprehension. Um, so I do, I do think it matters what we're teaching and when we're teaching it and how often we're teaching it and, and the deepening those concepts that children have already learned that they, that it all connects through um, Jimmy likes to talk about schema, for example, that can, that you, you're building children's schema and um, you're making connections for them. And if you, you can make those connections explicit as well. Um, but a lot of times we don't have that cohesion with Sometimes we'll have it within a grade, but a lot of times, sometimes it's missing across grades, that deepening of knowledge. Um, so I think that's what some of these uh, content-rich curricula are trying to do. Some of them have this spiral knowledge built in um, to deepen knowledge over time. That makes sense. So I, I'm curious, is I'm curious is this an area of settled science? Because I do see some trying to argue that it's settled science, we should be teaching um, knowledge systematically throughout the ELA block. Would you would you agree with that? Or do you think we have more to do in terms of so research? So I think it's important to teach um, knowledge, right? The question yeah. becomes, oh, should we teach it in the ELA block? Some people would argue, um, shouldn't we argue the opposite, that we should teach um, reading skills within the context of the disciplines um, rather than putting content into ELA? I think when I think about settled science, you know, I, I think as a scientist, I think about um, our knowledge base and the science of reading to be ever evolving and um, and we grow and we learn based on new information. Some things we thought were true weren't, you know, turn out to not be as firm as we thought. Uh, I think I put this, like I said, in that science of reading paper that we did in 2020, um, uh, led by Yakov Petcher. Um I think where I placed this in that article was in the promising research. Um, mm. I think that, um, of course, I don't think anybody would argue that building children's knowledge of the world is important. Um, not important, you mean? It's, I'm sorry, not important. That's <laughs> right. That's exactly what I mean. Um, I wouldn't say that anybody would say what's not important. It's the question of, does ELA um, instruction have to be content rich? Um, and so that's, I think that's a empirical question, you know, 
I do think that there is something about the combination from these meta-analyses. I think that there's something about the integration that is promising beyond the efficiency of saving time. Mm-hmm. I'm not arguing a saving time argument. Mm-hmm. What I think about is what does that integration afford us um, that is um, that builds children's language and co- when I think about language, think about vocabulary and comprehension skills even more in the area that I, um, so as other researchers sometimes have looked at motivation, you know, children who are learning things, they want to read these things, you know, because they love learning about these things and they're writing about these things and talking about these things and, you know, engaged, really engaged in learning. Um, and then, so the literacy skills also follow there, but what I am trying to push on, I agree with that. I agree. Motivation is critical. Um, but I also want that I think about how do conversations that occur um, when content in English language arts is integrated, um, how do those look different than conversations that teachers might have um, without a content focus? And we do have evidence that there are differences um, between the kinds of talk that teachers use when they're, for example, reading an informational text versus a narrative text. Mm -hmm. Um, We um, have differences in in teachers use of uh, of talk when they're teaching science in the science context versus um, other contexts we have a great deal of information about um, how the book reading context the extra textual talk or the talk surrounding the book reading experience that's outside of the text itself um, matters for children's learning um so i think about how do those how does building children's knowledge uh change the, the the language to which children are exposed and engaging in. And when we think about the language register of that's valued in schools and in books, um, it, some people call it the academic language. Um, and But when you think about written language, it's different than the language that we speak. It's different in its syntax and it's different in its vocabulary, advanced vocabulary words. Um, it's different in the, the you know, so if we don't expose children, younger children to the language of texts and of books and engage them in knowledge, um, then we lose the opportunity to expose them to something that they'll need really later, that they will need as they're reading on their own, which is understanding um, both the the syntax and advanced language of books. And, And, you know, after that point, once they're starting to read, they're going to learn a lot of that from reading, right? They're going to learn a lot of of vocabulary and syntax because some of it is only in the um or primarily in written text we don't talk the same way we write mm. that's that's a really good point um on on that topic i do sometimes see people putting argument story that we should be really focusing on um non-fiction in the classroom during the ela block versus fiction and, you know, it's funny, I was just looking at a study that Nell Duke was um, sharing um, on showing the different parts of the brain were activated when we read fiction versus nonfiction, which really led me to the conclusion that it's just important that we teach a variety of texts and that trying to say we should only teach fiction or nonfiction might be a sort of a, um, a false dichotomy. Yes, exactly. A false dichotomy. It's kind of, there's so many things in education where people are creating these false dichotomies. 
reading comprehension strategies or knowledge. They don't have to be dichotomous. Neither does fiction and nonfiction have to be dichotomous. It's a both and. There are different structures that children will need to be able to access both kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the the other thing that people do with the dichotomy is they think it's they say it's um, the first you learn to read and then you read to learn, but rather you can be, you're learning the whole time from the books you're exposed to. You might be listening to learn for, in the beginning, um, but the, but both of those things are growing up together. Um, yeah. So in my view, um, the reason why I push on informational text is not because I want to exclude fiction texts. It's because fiction texts have been the prized ones in our early grades classrooms for the longest time. It's only recently that we have been really seeing more of um, informational text use. My my um, my colleague Sen Wong, um, Wong just um, published uh, her, a study looking, or she's in the middle of publishing a study. I mean, we're in, we're in the review process right now, but she looked at what teachers are reading in kindergarten. And it used to be that teachers uh, in prior studies take done about maybe a decade earlier, a uh, decade or more earlier, that very little informational text was being read in the early childhood classrooms in pre-K and K. Um, but in her study, um, we're finding that um, there's a lot more informational text use than previously reported. And that's really encouraging. Um, But, um, and and standards have now also stated 50-50 kind of uh, split between those things in the early grades is is, um, recommended. Um, So again, it is both of those, not just one or the other, but there are a lot of benefits um, for informational texts that studies have gleaned. Yeah, you know, I was rereading the Filderman 2022 meta-analysis on reading comprehension. And there was a, a finding in there that I missed the first time around, or at least the implication of the finding I missed the first time around. And the, that study showed that there was double the impact on reading comprehension for um, narrative, sorry, for no, non-fiction texts mm-hmm. opposed to narrative texts. Um, and that's made me wonder just within the last three or four months, if maybe there is a value in focusing more on non-fiction like if maybe that should be the focus, not necessarily to the point where we're excluding narrative mm-hmm. or poetry, mm-hmm. but um, maybe if it should be slightly more than 50% of the time devoted to nonfiction. Do you have any thoughts if we should spend more time on nonfiction versus fiction? Or is that too much of getting back to making a false dichotomy out of it? Well, no, I don't think it's making a false dichotomy. I think that I think that empirical work is needed to know what proportions um what proportion we should be using. I also tend to favor informational text because um, children tend to be interested in the, in, in the topics that are being discussed. Um, Sometimes people say, Oh, the kids are not interested. But what I find, I found, I found differently that children are very interested and motivated by informational text. Um, The, um, the type of talk that happens around a read aloud informational text does have more um, advanced kind of language modeling kinds of uh, features than around narrative talk. And so I do also, I also have the bias for informational text as well, um, but not with the, at the exclusion mm-hmm. of, of uh, fiction or stories. Um, 
So, yeah, I think that that's an empirical question that I think more research should be done on. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. And I, I think I am out of questions to, to give to you at this point in time, <laughs> but I, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. And what the audience doesn't necessarily know is there was quite a bit of trouble around um, Zoom itself and um, technical difficulties. So I want to thank um, Dr. Cabal for her patience tonight. Um, and what the audience also might not know is that um, virtually anyone who comes on this podcast is going to be bound to deal with either scheduling difficulties or Zoom difficulties. So I do appreciate all the guests who come on who take out time out of their busy schedules. And um, Dr. Cabal is such a, an expert in this, the field. So I think all the listeners are very lucky to hear her talk about the subject. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, my name looks like Cabal, but it's Cabal like Scrabble. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And I've been no, mispronouncing no, no, this whole don't time. Don't apologize. No, don't apologize. It's it, it, Orthographically, it totally looks like Cabell. In fact, my husband's name is Todd. And people used to call in college, people called him Todd Cabell, Todd Cabell. They called him Taco because it sounds like Taco Bell. <laughs> so well, no problem at all. This, this is a testament how modest and polite she is because this is our second conversation and we're about two hours into chatting and she's only now telling me that I've been mispronouncing her name for this whole time. <laughs> Is not a problem at all. I totally get it. And um, you can even edit this part out of the conversation. It doesn't matter to me. But I, just... <laughs> I, I think I'll leave it in, actually. <laughs> thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the work you're doing.